It is necessary that we maintain our food security and water security in a country such as Australia, where we constantly have periods of drought. And the idea that we want to destroy this with coal seam gas, it's truly shocking. I mean, soil health is really our key asset, our number one key asset in Australia. Uh, and it is linked into landscape and ecosystem function, linked into biodiversity. Yeah, a lot of our political debate is really geared towards these traditional ideas of jobs versus the environment. And that's just really not the case once you start to drill down to it. So everywhere you look at it, there are regulatory failures, there are gaps and there are burdens and they are all on the landholder. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good evening. I'd like to acknowledge that I am joining you all on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation. And I'd like to acknowledge the ancestral lands that we are all joining from. And I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for joining us this evening for the panel discussion, The Battle for a Future, Farming and Extraction. Tonight's event is hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute, a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research, and the University of Sydney's Institute of Agriculture, who contribute valuable knowledge to the agricultural and food sector. My name is Susan Park. I am a professor of global governance here at the University of Sydney and a research lead at the Sydney Environment Institute's Unsettling Resources Project. This event is part of the SEI's new series, Communities on the Frontline, which explores the impacts of a sustainable and just energy transition from fossil fuels towards renewable energy on a range of local communities. This is the third event in the Communities on the Frontline series. The series seeks to link the various Sydney Environment Institute research projects from unsettling resources to grounded imaginaries. It highlights the work of the Institute in addressing those often left behind um, in, um, as a result of systemic changes. This evening's event will explore how Australia can ensure that its agricultural future has a direction through regenerative farming and transitioning away from harmful coal seam gas extraction. We are currently in the midst of a climate, energy and food crisis. The weekend, over the weekend, Australia finally had a real climate election. And while the results have indicated that we have now members of parliament that are interested in transitioning away from fossil fuels, we cannot, um, we, we must continue to push forward. The Australian Labor Party is likely and is forming government. The Greens, as a major party, have now garnered 12% of the vote. We've seen a wave of teal independents that have carved into traditional Liberal Party territory to advocate for climate change. So this has been a truly momentous occasion, a true climate election. But we also note that the major parties have continued to push forward for new oil, coal and gas projects. And fundamentally, the Australian Labor Party has announced that it will not be it will not bow to the pressure of the Australian Greens uh, to end coal and gas exports. 
And this is why this panel tonight is of fundamental importance. I have three speakers here to talk about this interconnection between agriculture and fossil fuels. So I'd like to introduce the, the three speakers and then move directly on to questions about how we can pass out the impact of fossil fuels and the potential for regeneration if we do have, uh, if we do continue to move forward with oil, uh, with coal and gas. So Tabitha Karp is acting on behalf of her mother's black soil farm whilst being an advocate for the Springvale community and those who strenuously oppose coal seam gas taking place on priority agricultural areas in the Darling Downs in Queensland. Tabitha believes that it is her moral duty to protect Australia's important underground aquifers and finite black soils from gas resource activity. Madeline Taylor is a senior lecturer at Macquarie University, Deputy Director of the Centre for Energy and Natural Resource Innovation and Transformation at Macquarie University. She is an honorary associate here with us at the Sydney Environment Institute within the Unsettling Resources Collective and a climate counsellor for the Climate Council. Madeline specialises in energy and natural resources law and the complex socio-legal issues associated with the energy transition. Madeline has published widely, examining energy regulation and development across complex and multiple land uses with a particular focus on agricultural reason, uh, regions. And finally, Rebecca Cross is a lecturer in Geography in the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney and a member of the Institute of Agriculture. She is a rural and environmental geographer who employs a participatory bottom-up community approach to her research. So welcome all for uh, coming and speaking to us this evening. So I'd like to turn first to Tabitha to ask you as a farmer of the Darling Downs area of Queensland, if you could tell us what's happening there and what issues are you facing from the prospective Shell Arrow Energy Surat Gas Project? Uh, thank you for that. So that is a loaded question. Uh, a lot has occurred in the last three months. So for those who don't understand, our farm is situated in the Darling Downs in Queensland and Shell's joint venture with PetroChina Arrow Energy have come onto our lands and in the various districts in the Western and Darling Downs. And they want to put coal seam gas wells on what we call priority agricultural areas. Now, this means that as a state status, these areas should be protected at all costs because it is, the, um, it is very valuable farmland. Now, what we're finding is that the government is allowing Arrow Energy, once again, joint venture with Shell and PetroChina, to come in unhindered, uh, bypass, or should I say, ignore the various legislations that are in place, and underdrill our farms with deviated wells uh, without necessarily having our permission and depleting the aquifers. Now, what people must understand is when they take the coal seam gas out, they have to deplete that coal seam of all its water. When that occurs, there will be a chain of events in the upper aquifers where you lose water. 
Now, this has significance because the Office of Groundwater, which is a part of the Queensland state government, they released their underground water impact report this year. And in that report, there has been a significant finding that due to coal seam gas, subsidence will occur in these priority agricultural areas. It is predicted to occur. And in some instances, it has started to occur, for example, in the districts of Kapan. Now, this is significant because when you have subsidence on these valuable agricultural lands, uh, you have sinking of the land in various areas. And in order to farm, you have to have flat land. Now, if you have all these different pock marks across a farm, then basically it is really difficult to farm, very difficult. In fact, almost impossible because what happens is when you have high rain events, you have ponding in those areas and you can't grow a crop in a necessary time that is needed. Uh, now, that's one problem. Now, the other problem is the subsidence that has been predicted to occur, it has only been measured on a regional scale. So what that means is the predicted subsidence hasn't been measured at a paddock scale, so site-specific. And this means that the predictions so far uh, contained within the underground water impact report, uh, whilst they're significant, it doesn't really incorporate the true extent of the impact that will occur. Now, what this does is, what people need to understand is that our farms have black vertical soils. And this is basically a climate-fighting soil. What it enables farmers to do is it allows us to farm in extended dry periods and still produce a crop with very little rain. And black vertical soils, from what I understand, only covers about approximately two and a half percent of the ice-free land uh, extent worldwide. But we in Australia are happy to destroy these black soils. So here we have this uh, amazing finite soil that we're able to farm in dry periods. And then at the same time, if we need water, you have irrigators who are able to access the underground aquifers to, you know, top up their crops with water. But what happens if those underground aquifers are depleted or impacted uh, by depleting the aquifers even below, for example, the condamine alluvium. So what we're doing is we're basically destroying our own agricultural industry in Australia. And this isn't just occurring in Queensland, this is occurring in New South Wales also. And what we need to do is we need to declare black soils as a national environmental value uh, preferably under the EPBC Act at a federal level, but they also need to be recognised and legislated for at a state level. Black soils should be an environmental value. Uh, it is 
It is necessary that we maintain our food security and water security in a country such as Australia, where we constantly have periods of drought. And the idea that we want to destroy this with coal seam gas is uh, unbelievable. It's truly shocking. Now, that is just one area of this fight that we're facing in the Darling Downs in Queensland. Uh, there are many other issues which, I mean, look, I, I could sit here for hours describing the issues that we face in terms of a complicit government, complicit statutory bodies, for example, the Gasfields Commission. Uh, we have a perfect piece of legislation called the Regional Planning Interest Act. Okay, it's not 100% perfect, but if it was properly enacted, this legislation is supposed to protect priority agricultural areas. Uh, but the government refuses to enact the intent of this piece of legislation. Now, that's at a Queensland state level. At the federal level, you have a environmental department that is not properly enacting the EPBC Act and monitoring what's happening at a ground level in terms of um, number of wells. Now, this is very significant because the number of wells determines if we're going to be protected under the EPBC Act in regards to subsidence. So, but that's a very simplified, a very simplified explanation. Uh, but what's really important is if subsidence occurs, this will also destroy other environmental values within the farming landscape. For example, river systems, uh, regional ecosystems, which we have on our farm. Uh, when you have subsidence, it changes the slope change and the way that water crosses uh, a floodplain. So when that happens, what you're doing is you're putting uh, uh you're placing, um, how should I say this? You're, the river systems and regional ecosystems are at risk. And the Condamine River carries itself to the headwaters of the Murray-Darling Basin. And as well as you have the Condamine Alluvium Aquifer. Now, this is also intricately connected with the Murray-Darling Basin. So all in all, you have this um, recipe for contributing to an acceleration of climate change, if you like, by changing the ecological landscape at a, uh, at a um, land level, if you like. So, yes. Uh, other than that, I mean, without our regional ecosystems, now there's been talk worldwide that gradually when we export our agricultural product, will it be competitive in terms of, will it have a carbon neutral footprint? Now, this is another important aspect. Now, of course, if you have coal seam gas, I don't understand how we could be carbon neutral. Uh, from a personal um, basis, our regional ecosystems could potentially offset any emissions that our farm, you know, uh, creates. But if that regional ecosystem is destroyed, what happens? How will we have a competitive product to sell within the export markets that creates carbon neutral product? 
Now, that's the other thing. We need to start thinking as a nation, how are we going to create agriculture? Uh, how are we going to export agricultural products uh, and have a carbon neutral footprint? This is a really important subject and I don't see how coal seam gas can exist with farming. It's just not possible. It's not possible at all. And not to mention that any potential methane uh, that is uh, leaked from these gas wells. I mean, that's a whole other, that's a whole other subject. <laughs> Thank you, Tabitha. There's so much to unpack here. I think yeah. it's really important that you've identified the impacts for farming and the ability to actually farm with subsidence and obviously the impacts that coal seam gas could have on what is your black gold, this uh, the black soil that, that you actually have um, has yes. actually in the region. And I think obviously there's connections and intersections here with um, the, the use of water and the impacts of water, especially not just in your region, but flowing through the whole Murray-Darling system. Um, obviously there is a lot here to unpack and the ability of you as a farmer, not just um, to, to create food for for Australia, but also for market, as you said, in a climate neutral way. Um, I'd like to go now to Madeline to ask ask her um, how how does how did I mean Tabitha ended up with this question. You know, can we actually have um, extractive coal seam gas with farming? And I wanted to ask you what you thought um, the impacts and and the burdens for extract the extractive industry is for farming communities in Queensland, but also in other areas. Thank you, Susan. And before I start, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm coming to you all from the beautiful land of the Camaragal people, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I would also like to acknowledge Tabitha and all of her fellow farming folk that are on the line today who are tirelessly fighting for over a decade now this fight around land use, land access and coexistence of gas uh, and agricultural land. So thank you all to all of you who are listening today. Um, and it's just wonderful to hear from Tabitha's first-hand experiences. I suppose if we pair it back and we look at what really is at stake here, not only do we have our black soils, but we have you know, the aspects of our methane emissions that are just completely unaccounted for here. I think we need to take a step back and look at the regulatory framework, because when we do and we look at the regulatory framework in Queensland in particular, we see how, how on earth it could be possible that we've gotten to this stage today. So the fundamental basis of the regulatory framework in Queensland is that of adaptive management. And adaptive management was actually linchpinned uh, by the regulators in Queensland as a kind of off-the-shelf solution to usher in coal seam gas and an LNG export industry. Now, adaptive management actually stems from the University of British Columbia and a various amount of studies on fisheries. And it's supposed to be disseminated on pilot projects that are very small and implementing regulation that can be constantly monitored and adapted, if you like. So that very small-scale approach to regulation was put on an entire new technology in coal seam gas in Queensland. So what we have now is overlapping, complex, in some instances over 700 pages long, Petroleum Acts, Planning Acts, Environmental Acts, the Regional Planning Act, and the MERCAP, just to name a few. 
So when you look at these different pieces of regulation, you see that it's almost like this octopus of, of varying overlapping uh, agencies that actually don't data share at all. And so now we're at the stage where farmers, landholders have no clue about what type of wells are where, neither does the regulator. And this has led to a series of inquiries essentially into the broken and the failed regulatory approach of Queensland, the most recent of which is on subsidence. And the subsidence issue is one that is quite nuanced and new. It's a kind of a quasi-new impact, if you like, because only after years of dewatering wells do we start to see this subsidence. So now that this is coming to, to light, we have landholders who have no compensation rights because of the way our property law works. So in Australia, as an advent of colonisation, the subsurface of the land is not owned by the landholder. And that is because under the constitution, states and territories own petroleum resources of which coal seam gas is one. And because of that, we have this sort of tripartite relationship where we have the landholder owning the surface fee simple estate in the case of Queensland or a pastoral lease in other areas. Underneath of that, we have the substratum, which is owned by the crown, by the state. And then we have the crown giving off proprietary rights to mine and extract that gas to companies. But what has ended up happening is the landholder has been completely cut out of these discussions, essentially. When we have the Crown releasing petroleum acreage, it's called, we have exploration licences being granted. Now, at that exploration stage, we have preliminary activities taking hold. And this is supposed to be low impact, um, walking across the land, taking a bit of soil, taking a bit of water, these sorts of things. And the, the landholder has no right of veto at all, of course, here. It's literally an entry notice, and within 10 days, the company can start gathering data. So at that point, we have this situation where we have a lack of veto right, a lack of compensation in most instances, and we have preliminary activities happening. Now, what's happened in this instance of subsidence is that the Queensland regulator has actually said subsidence is a preliminary activity meaning that it's not of high impact, which is just completely contrary to whatever every farmer, landholder, or anybody who would look at a subsidence um, you know, piece of land would say. So we have um, Arrow now admitting to illegal drill, drilling, which Tabitha um, had a nod to earlier. That was a $1 million fine, which is not very much when you split that between landholders. And we have a, a new kind of generation of landholders who never gave consent to drilling, that had a directional drill underneath their land, that had subsidence. And the only way they can get compensation at the moment, because it's not a compensatable effect under the Mercap, is to go off to the land court at their expense and at their time and money and psychological well-being. And we've already seen the costs of the mental stakes of coal seam gas for, for Queensland farmers for over years now. So we're at this stage where a reckoning needs to occur. No more inquiries, no more consulting with landholders and having you know, endless inquiries. What was needed in the first instance was actually what other states and territories have done albeit not maybe adequately, but at least stopping the coal seam gas industry and actually doing a scientific inquiry like they did in the Northern Territory. That was what was needed in Queensland. Queensland's the only state hosting a gas industry that did not do that. So we're at the stage where we've had multiple inquiries. Uh, another one was the Regional Planning Interest Act that Tabitha uh, talked about, which at, at, the, at its first um, sort of glean, it looks like a wonderful piece of legislation to safeguard priority agricultural areas. But what actually happened was there was a variety of exemptions 
which meant that riders, which was the type of approval that was needed, were never really used in a comprehensive and meaningful fashion. And the key exemption there is already existing activities. So if you have a coal seam gas well or there was already a petroleum license granted, that means a, a rider permission was not needed. Or in the second instance, if it's a newer activity, if you have a conduct and compensation agreement with a landholder, that is also an exemption under the RPI Act. So landholders are pressured to give access through this conduct and compensation agreement, uh, which is no standardised form. There's no standardised um, compensation measure either. Various awards at the land court level have ranged from $5 a hectare all the way up. They're not transparent. They're often commercial and confidence. And this has, this has really caused an absolute cataclysm in, in agricultural communities. And these CCAs have to be negotiated within 20 business days for a busy farmer who's trying to harvest their land and trying to operate safely in their workplace where coal seam gas probably will be. So everywhere you look at it, there are regulatory failures, there are gaps and there are burdens and they are all on the landholder. And I thought I would just read just one quote from the Queensland Audit Office Managing Coal Seam Gas Activities Report, which I will pop in the chat there for, for anyone who's interested. We and the regulators were unable to verify the complete population of authorities and leases for CSG activities with any degree of confidence. The regulators and the Commission have not developed an approach to effectively identify risks using the coal seam gas data they gather. So they can't identify risks. They have no idea how many petroleum licenses have been granted because there's not been adequate monitoring, let alone water bores, make good, RPIs, all the rest of it. So at that fundamental overarching level, the Queensland Orders Office has told us there has been an absolutely catastrophic regulatory failure and it's been happening for over a decade. Thank you, Madeline. That's really identifying in a very clear fashion, as you said, the, the catastrophic regulatory failures that have been taking place, primarily through the state government, right, but also in a broader context of the Australian context where um, there has been, a, a, I guess, a, a failure of, of really implementing the precautionary principle that we as our signatories to uh, in terms of um, international, uh, international agreements. Mm. Oh, exactly. And, you know, the 1992 Rio Declaration where the precautionary principle was, was first expound as part of ecologically sustainable development, and the precautionary principle comes from German law, has never been implemented by the EPBCA either. And that's what Graham Samuels has said on multiple occasions in his review of the EPBCA. So at that Commonwealth level, there's also a huge amount of problem. And that's because we don't have a duty to the environment in Australia. That's the, that's the overall problem. Well, this is a really good time to bring in Rebecca at this point. Um, Rebecca, you're an agricultural expert. What are the alternatives to gas? Uh, thanks, everyone. Um, so I'll just start with um, saying that I'm coming to you from the unceded sovereign lands of the Gadigal people here in Sydney um, and pay my respects to First Nations peoples um, listening and all over the globe. Um, so, yes, I suppose that I would like to start by um, thanking Madeline and Tabitha and just reiterating some of those points Tabitha made around our vertisols and our black soils and just how important they are um, globally um, in a world where, uh, you know, food um, is coming to a crux point in terms of how much we can produce 
Um, and with climate change coming and impacting that as well. Um, you may have heard the black soils are referred to as black gold in a lot of contexts. Um, and you may have heard that uh, we have only 60 harvests left. Um, so these soils are really the basis of our food system. Um, and they're clay rich soils. So they have amazing water holding capacity and they can hold the most organic matter, which is why they can also hold the most carbon. Um, and this is where we get to a point to maybe talking about instead of releasing hydrocarbons um, from under our ground, to instead actually um, sequestering them and bedding them down. Um, so I've looked at some, some literature and vertisols or these black soils can hold 65 to 85 tonnes of carbon per hectare. Um, and that's huge and will go a long way to, to meeting our, our global carbon emissions reduction promise. Um, but, but reaching that level is very much based on uh, different types of management. Um, and this is where uh, regenerative agriculture that uh, I work a lot in um, comes into play. And so far, with, in, with increasing soil carbon in soils, regenerative agriculture has been found to be the best way. Um, there is also conservation agriculture, which I'll talk about as well, because the region that Tabitha is in is both a cropping and grazing region. So um, regenerative agriculture is very much based on bringing back um, native grasslands, um, which do a lot to help retain uh, that soil, especially the, the top soil, on top, um, which is uh, most important and has degraded across the world. Um, but they also have really, really long roots. So they enable carbon to be stored very deep down. They enable water infiltration into those soils. They can tap into groundwater to live. Um, and so they're really... Uh, they, they have benefits because they also add to biodiversity and it's really a system that marries conservation and production on the same piece of land. Um, looking at more conventional cropping systems, you can also increase soil carbon um, through things like minimum or zero tillage by retaining the stubble, which is the uh, bit of the plant that isn't harvest that's left behind and you leave those roots in the soil um, they're adding to that organic uh, matter. Um, or things like green manuring, where you grow crops to uh, actually dig back into the soil, um, for example, sun hemp. So using these sort of practices um, can actually be very lucrative for farmers as well and add um, another income stream and help diversify incomes. So we want to look at the potential of these landscapes um, to create virtuous cycles rather than vicious cycles where you're pulling things out, um, you know, resulting in subsidence, resulting in potential loss of water, um, which has feedback problems, not just environmentally, but socially and culturally um, for these systems. And we want I think the, the potential is to generate virtuous cycles where we're building soil carbon. Um, I mean, soil health is really our key asset, our number one key asset in Australia, uh, and it is linked into landscape and ecosystem function, linked into biodiversity, soil 
um, microbial diversity, um, and really is how we're going to build resilience and adaptation to climate change as we go forward. On the other side of things, it, it can um, contribute soil health, um, means that you have better plant health, means you have better animal health, means you're generating nutrient-dense food, which means you have better human health. So it's a win-win-win. That's what a virtuous cycle is. It's where there's, it's a win-win-win sort of situation. Um, and regenerative ag is where it is being adopted is really bringing hope into rural areas. Um, it's, it's prosperous. It's keeping farmers on farms, um, which is needed when you start thinking about uh, the social fabric of our rural areas, which uh, is really important. We need people on the land managing um, managing these landscapes. And, and that's where we also really need to bring this conversation to who has a voice at this table. Um, where are local Indigenous peoples' voices in these debates? Where is the power of self-determination, the power to care for country, the power of refusal to be able to say, no, that's not what's best for this country? Um, we really need to think about that and move also towards Indigenous forms of agriculture, um, which could generate these virtuous cycles and help decolonize agriculture. So there's just such great potential if, if we can look at this in, um, in a way where what is generating the win-win-win-win-win situation rather than a loss and deficit situation. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It was just such a pleasure to listen to you. Unfortunately, a lot of our political debate is really geared towards these traditional ideas of jobs versus the environment. And that's just really not the case once you start to drill down to it. I mean, you know, drill down, <laughs> pun unintended. Uh, but really what we're talking about is, is the future, not just of a specific region and community, but also broader concession, concerns about the productivity of an area, the ability to, as you said, grow um, across the whole um, uh, the whole chain of from soil to to crops to to human health. And what I've really enjoyed about listening to you is getting a sense of how we can maintain not just our own productivity and the health of our communities, but also in this broader context of pandemics and border closures and supply chain issues, that actually we have the capacity here to look after not just our own people, but to to the planet more broadly. So I said, as you said, there are win-win-wins uh, all the way through. I guess the question that I have, and, and some, some, uh, some people posted questions prior to this panel that our panelists are weaving into their answers. So hopefully we're addressing them, even if we don't outline them directly. Question uh, for all of the panelists, and I'm going to start with you, Tabitha. Is what do you think? Um, what do you think the future is going to hold for you? You're you're um, you're sort of defending your farm uh, against coal seam gas. Um, how's it going? How do, how do you feel about this? Where do you think it's it's gonna going to end up? Uh, that's a question we ask ourselves every day. Of course, you know, we're fighting it from every angles. Uh, Madeline has pointed out all the various, you know, legislative uh, requirements and so forth, and we've gone into it in detail. But where we end up really depends on the government, state government and federal government, and 
how they want to and whether they want to protect this finite agricultural land. So I've thought about this question a lot, and I think what it really comes down to is lobbying. And this seems to influence uh, legislative outcomes and policy in state and federal government. So if we're going to have any impact, I feel we need to address lobbying on a political scale at the state and federal level. But in terms of whether we will have any impact, I think we are starting to have impact. The government is definitely listening to us, but only because we've educated ourselves. If we hadn't educated ourselves, then we would not, the government would have had a choice not to listen to us. So that is the crux of it. Thanks, Tabitha. Moving to you, Madeline, what future do you see between farming communities and, and energy giants? Yeah, it's a really good question. Just, you know, picking up on what Tabitha said and one of our audience members have said is this is a lack of energy justice at every level. The fact that landholders have had to band together to resource share, which is obviously a very good thing, but it takes time away from the land and money to have to research how this really complex regulatory framework works and then paying all the costs to go off to court is just a systemic failure of procedural justice. But moving forward and and looking hopefully with this positive election outcome to a a more brighter picture in some respects around agriculture and co-benefits, I think there are many practices overseas that we could look to to try and repair this nexus between food, energy and water. And one of those ways is um, something along the lines of a just transition body. And that has been implemented um, in, in Germany, of course, with the Coal Coalition. But most recently in Canada, where there's been a statutory just transition body that will be tabled to actually guide regions and agricultural landholders in particular away from fossil fuels and into co-benefit structures. And one of the very promising co-benefit structures that I spend a lot of my time on now in research is that of AgroPV. So co-locating solar panels and solar farms with agricultural land, mostly grazing land that won't, won't be used for cropping. And what we've seen in Dubbo in particular is a huge uptake of these trials with sheep um, and, and solar farming. So we're, we're, we're farming the solar and we're farming the sheep, if you like. And this has so many benefits, not only for our transition and lowering emissions, which is wonderful, and increasing our renewable energy uptake, which we need to do rapidly. The IPCC Working Group 3 just told us that two months ago. But it gives benefits to farmers. It makes them feel, and they are indeed, participating in the transition, which is so wonderful for these communities. It means that they are hubs in their own right, their own uh, very own power systems. They provide shading for, for sheep and also moisture. Um, and one particular farmer in Dubbo that I speak to quite regularly told me that this drought proofed his farm because of the, the different precipitation coming off the PV panels and the secondary income he was getting. So it's a very, very exciting time. And what we really need at a national level now is a commitment to more agri-PV pilot studies, to releasing funding and grants for communities and farmers who are interested in this, and making sure we regulate it right at the very get-go. And there are some wonderful pilot projects. One in particular that's being slated in Dubbo is a 520 megawatt, which is huge. Think about that. That's sort of like 3% of New South Wales electricity demand. It's huge. Up in Dubbo for sheep grazing, that's going to be by BP Light Source. 
Um, so there's a lot of exciting things that are happening in terms of co-benefits. And I think that this word that we've touched on a little bit today of coexistence which was an adaptive management word that has been imbued in the legislation in Queensland. We need to get away from coexistence. It's about co-benefits. It's about injecting justice. It's about co-locating so that, you know, a farmer and their agricultural activities are not hindered while solar farm generations are happening. So I see a lot of opportunity and it's time for us now that we have this political climate to really seize on that opportunity. Thanks, Madeline. So I, I really like the fact that you've made the distinction here between co-benefits and coexistence. Rebecca, could you tell us, is can, can coal seam gas and farming coexist? And is there any potential for co-benefits here? Uh, I suppose um, when you're, I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure that they can coexist at all. Um, Maybe other types of mining can, you know, shift to coexist, but I don't think coal gas is one of those. Um, basically, we need to decarbonize, and these landscapes are our best bet for mitigating and adapting to climate change. Um, just bringing back food again, you know, um, protecting the soils that generate the basis of our, our food system should be the forefront of any um, thing that we do and so supporting groups like lock the gate the lock the gate campaign supporting groups like farmer action for climate change um, these are things that we can do to raise the voice of landholders in these locations as well as indigenous voices that are speaking out against um, coal seam gas and just to link to what Madeline said yeah farmers are very interested in being part of the energy transition um, and being able to support renewable energy. And, and that's an integration of, you know, ag production, biodiversity conservation and energy provision. So um, that, that is absolutely a virtuous cycle. And I think that focusing on that um, and pushing the debate towards how do we get there um, will be really important. And, and part of that is uh, saying no to coal seam gas. Thank you. I'm going to now ask a sort of loaded question. I think I've asked a few of those already um, that combines two concerns. One is from Marcia who asks, um, you know, how do we hold gas uh, to account for the promises that they make and seemingly break? Uh, and then the sort of second sort of follow-on question from that is how can we move away from the interests of fossil fuels? Um, Tabitha, do you want to have a go at that and then then through the panel? Ah. Oh. I mean, once again, it comes down to government conviction and what they want to do. What we're finding is it's not really the gas companies that are at fault here. Yes, of course, they influence the debate through, um, you know, financial incentives. But the real problem here that we are finding as a group is the government. The government is allowing this. They're allowing adaptive management to be hijacked and they're using it for purposes of changing legislation on the go, for example. So whether, you know, we can hold coal seam gas companies, um, you know, to, you know, carry out any sort of uh, positive action, I think that's very difficult, especially when they're also able to self-assess. 
if they're able to self-assess, then the government does not have to regulate anything. They don't have to uh, provide oversight. So, no, at this time, I, I think it's very difficult to do so. And until the government is ready to come to the table and have a real discussion about, you know, what they view as, um, you know, coexistence and so forth, then we won't be able to hold coal seam gas companies to account. It's impossible. Thanks. Madeline, would you like to answer that? I think what this comes down to is the role of the state. I think we're at the stage where petroleum companies are a profit-making enterprise and we know the tyranny of the shareholder model for corporations and whether we move to a stakeholder model and actually enforce ESG initiatives like ASIC is wanting to do is another question. I think Tabitha is exactly right. It's about what is the role of the state so if you look at a place like Norway, for instance, that has a public ownership model as well for petroleum, when it comes to their offshore oil, 73% of the profits made of oil and gas companies gets paid right back into the pension fund. That's why they have $1.3 trillion in their pension fund and they're able to divest from oil. If we had done such a thing where the state actually had a duty of development and was a guardian of agricultural land and a guardian of, of royalties to feed back into communities, this would be a different picture than it is today. So now we need to lobby our efforts and set our sites and research sites on questioning the state and what their role really is as owner of the petroleum resource um, in its state constitution on behalf of all of its citizens, there needs to be intergenerational equity. And that's how the Norwegians approach this. And that's what we need to do. We've seen that it can be done. Look at the UK, for instance, an amazing policy U-turn from the eight successive uh, UK governments who were pro-fracking and pro-shale gas has now been turned on its head and a moratorium is in play as of 2019 because farmers, researchers, um, and everybody here on this call, the you know, audience members in general and the public united against this. So that's what it's about now. It's about a reckoning and it's about questioning what is the role of the state and what is intergenerational equity because it's completely missing. Allowing petroleum corporations to self-assess, like Tabitha just said, which is the next lot of recommendations from the Gas Field Commission around the RPI Act, is not good enough. And so telling farmers stories and actually uniting research pursuits as well, I think is absolutely key in educating ourselves about providing an alternative to this as well. That's what co-benefits are about. AgriPV is about regenerative agriculture, like Rebecca's talking about. It's providing that just transition and saying to the state, what is your role? I think that's absolutely cru crucial. Thanks, Madeline. I think that's just so important. And what I've really liked to see in the chat is um, people providing resources to each other about how they can demand more from their state governments and from the federal government. I'd like to turn now to Rebecca and then back to Tabitha. There's a question here from Rod who's asked about Australian agricultural practices themselves. Um, and if we're interested in transitioning to sustainable agriculture and grazing, surely we should be stopping land land clearing, returning um, our threatened ecosystems back to viable states. Rebecca, do you want to comment on this, that we should be advocating for a decreasing consumption of animal protein and uh, removing or, or, or slowing down intensive mechanised production of food products? Uh, yeah, um, I, I suppose that I see it more as um, 
So yes, stopping land clearing for sure, um, but transitioning back to a native grass basis, which the box gum grassy woodlands endangered ecological community really covers the whole swathe of our sheep and wheat belt um, in the eastern part of Australia. Um, and, and so, you know, that's transitioning back to endemic species um, contributing to biodiversity, as I said before. Um, grazing is a really key way of making that transition happen. Um, and, and so there's a whole ethical meat-eating aspect to this as well. And even though um, I, I understand that that's not um, in line with vegetarian and vegan philosophies, um, the potential for, for certain types of grazing to actually rehabilitate our landscapes uh, needs exploration and needs, um, needs further support. Not only grazing, um, Indigenous cultural burning can also regenerate landscapes. Um, and then beyond that, there are things like pasture cropping where you're integrating um, having a native grass base with um, a more conventional crop um, being put into that grass base. Um, so transitioning to these types of agriculture that uh, improve the landscape's um, health and function at the same time as enabling us to harvest off the top of that to feed ourselves um, means that we're getting the best of, of all worlds. And, and I really think that we need to think about the costs of not doing that um, versus, you know, for now and into the future because the economy and jobs are often brought up as a reason as to why we need these industries. Um, but in fact, how far down the track do we want to be thinking? You know, are we only thinking a couple of generations or are we thinking, you know, thousands of years? Um, and if we're thinking thousands of years, that should really impact what decisions we make today and, and what we're willing to, you know, sacrifice or trade off today for that intergenerational justice. Thanks, Rebecca. Tabitha, do you want to comment? Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything that Rebecca has said. And I mean, land clearing, of course, I think it should be limited as much as possible. Uh, but I think what it comes down to is having incentive. Farmers need incentive and help to have these, um, if you like, uh, regional ecosystems or re-establishing regional ecosystems. I don't believe there is enough state incentive. So if also, I think the other thing is when I suggest that we declare black soils as an environmental value, I believe if that could occur, then it would lead to greater debate about how do we maintain these landscapes for the future. And that plays into, you know, what Rebecca says, um, taking a holistic approach and debating how we can carry out that holistic approach. So having regional ecosystems, maintaining our native grasses, also because weeds are a huge problem and compete against our native grasses, we do need livestock. So... That is a really important um, aspect to have state incentive. Uh, and of course, to have, listen, we can't do any of that if we don't have our underground aquifers.
So that will be ever more difficult. In fact, I don't know how we will be able to carry out all of that if we don't have water. Thanks, Tabitha. I've got one final question from Carol, who's um, identified that if you're any town within 50 kilometres of a major city, it's targeted by state government and developers for housing development, even on prime agricultural uh, farmland. Um, do you think, do you, what do you think of this? Is this a major concern um, in terms of how land is actually zoned? Would anyone here on the panel like to comment? Tabitha? Gosh. Um, okay, so, so if you could just repeat it, sorry. Is is zoning the big one another problem that you face as as farmers of prime agricultural land? Uh, well, look, the problem is we already have zoning uh, for prime agricultural land, and I believe there's also. Um, other zoning, um, well, what we call status for the regional interest development. Um, so we already have, you know, all these zonings. The problem is that the state doesn't even abide by their own uh, regulation, if you like. So uh, in answering that question, no, we do not face any um, development in regards to housing or anything on PAAs. We're only facing coal and gas. So other than that, I'm not able to answer, sorry. That's totally fine. Only dealing with coal and gas seems to be taking out quite a lot of work for, for you. Um, I've got a comment from Lyndon who asks whether or not uh, because the major parties have been focused on fossil fuel extraction, whether or not a cap on political donations, along with full transparency, would help level the f playing field along with um, uh, an independent um, commission against corruption. And as somebody who works uh, in, in political science, I'd have to say absolutely, there's definitely uh, a sort of well-known, uh, uh, well-documented impact of, of mining companies uh, upon our political landscape. Um, but I would, uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap up the panel because uh, we are running out of time. It has been such an absolute pleasure to have all three of our panelists with us tonight. Um, so I'd like to thank you all for joining us this evening. It has been um, such a pleasure to unpack um, the relationship between coal seam gas and our farming community and the impact it has on agriculture. Just reiterating that the Darling Downs in Queensland does hold our black gold, um, not oil, but, but soil, and that this can have major ramifications for, again, our, our food security, our... Um, ability to to have um, sort of uh, coal uh, coal neutral exports our ability to to feed ourselves and our communities healthy regional environments and of course um, is dependent on the very aquifers that are under threat um, so please do feel free to um, access this um, podcast it will be released by the Sydney Environment Institute uh, in the coming days and please stay up to date with other events in the communities on the Frontline series. Our previous events have been on coal so this has been specific to, to gas and agriculture uh, and if you do or have found tonight's events interesting please follow the Sydney Environment Institute 
and the Institute of Agriculture on Twitter and on Facebook. So lots of social media plugs um, and the handles will be posted in the chat uh, by our Sydney Environment Institute um, staff. So thank you very much to everyone who participated, to our panelists, to our wonderful uh, audience that asked really probing questions and please have an enjoyable evening and keep fighting the good fight for climate.